You got nothing? Hey, we got it. We're going to continue this morning uh, studying the suffering of Jesus during this Lent season. And so if you join me in, in Matthew chapter 27, verses 26 through 31. Then he, Pontius Pilate, released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Then the governor's soldiers took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole company of soldiers around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on his head. They put a staff in his right hand. Then they knelt in front of him and mocked him. Hail, King of the Jews, they said. They spit on him and took the staff and struck him on the head again and again. After they had mocked him, they took off the robe and put his own clothes on him. Then they led him away to be crucified. This is what greatness looks like in the kingdom of God. This is the one who is truly the king of the Jews, as they claim, and the king of the universe and every created thing. He lives outside of time with no beginning and no end. He is the highest name above every other name in heaven and on earth and below the earth. And this is what greatness looks like. This is the incarnate God. This is the one who knelt down in the mud and got his hands dirty and formed man. He brought Adam to life with his own breath. The beginning of man is a kiss from God. So does Jesus, who is God, not have every right to do whatever he wants with those that he made out of dirt? Could he not have taken up his authority to overpower and humiliate these soldiers? How could what is created have any authority or power over the creator? This beating was beyond his sentence. Verse 26 tells us that he was scourged and is now being delivered to be crucified according to the sentence. But this beating was just because, just for extra measure. Yet this is greatness in this king's kingdom. That he gave up his right, was mocked, beaten, cursed, and spat upon. So what does greatness look like to us? Many of us know our rights. We might even trample another to keep them. We have freedom of speech, a right to bear arms, so on and so forth. We know what we're entitled to. We have the right to have our own way. We have the right to be happy. We have the right to be offended. But this is truly the King of the Jews, Lord of all, the greatest one. Yet in his mercy and humility, he is taken advantage of more than any other to ever exist. So if we consider ourselves a part of his kingdom, if we care to follow in his footsteps, or even dare to be great in this kingdom, what might it look like to follow the example of this man of sorrows, the son of suffering, who is truly and justly entitled to all glory, honor, and power? Let's pray. Jesus, help us see you. Your greatness is unveiled as we behold your suffering. You are truly set apart in righteousness, holy without blemish, 
who is like you? You did not defend yourself when many slandered you and wrongly accused you. You extended grace even to those who nailed you to the cross. In humility, you took on the punishment we deserved so that we could receive what you deserve. We give up our rights. We lay down our lives. You owe us nothing. We owe you everything. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 Thank you, Matt. Aubrey, when she gave announcements, uh, mentioned how it's Lent right now. And so what we've been doing during the season of Lent, that's just a, a pattern of church history in the church calendar where we prepare for Easter by remembering uh, the ways that Jesus suffered, what he did for us. And that's why we've been doing these reflections each week. And then also part of the church calendar is Holy Week this week. And holy means separate, different, set apart. So if it's a holy week, it's separate, it's different. It's not to be like every other week. And particularly what Christians have done through the centuries is taken a little extra time to remember what Jesus has done for us. And so I just want to encourage you to consider coming to the Good Friday service, giving an extra evening for the one who gave everything for you just to remember and worship. It's going to be a cleansing service uh, this year. That's going to be one of the themes of what we do. Um, also, consider doing the 40 hours of prayer. The prayer room is right over there. That's where we have people rotating in and out. Um, and we, we had the Sunday Network is a, is a new group we're part of, a, a regional gathering. We had 11 churches here, I guess 12, 12 churches counting us, represented just a few weeks ago. And um, multiple churches just wanted to see our church. The leaders wanted to see our church. And a group came into the prayer room, and they literally stepped into the prayer room and out of the prayer room and said, can you feel that? And we've had multiple reports of it. There is something about a room that is devoted to prayer to invite God in. And there's just lots of stories of people who go in there and something happens with God. And I say all that just to encourage you. If you've never done that, sign, I would encourage you to sign up for it. Or even if you can't do these 40 hours, sign up another time. If you want to know how, talk to somebody with a love to help or love to pray badge on. And then finally, I would say... If you can't make those two things because of your calendar in school, Thursday night, Friday night, we're still doing upper room on Wednesday night. So if you've got plans leading into the weekend, um, or if you just want to do an additional thing to make this week different, set apart, uh, you could come to upper room. It's up those stairs at 7 p.m. You can come for a half hour, one hour. I usually leave before they're done. They go for usually at least an hour and a half, two hours. So live worship and prayer. Okay, let me go through where we've been, because along with reflecting on Jesus' suffering, we've been doing a sermon series on sexuality. And so if I can, oh, there it is. If I can just go through, this is where we've been. The very first Sunday, we talked about Jesus' suffering by being tempted and tested, and that the ideal, the biblical ideal for sexuality is that two become one. Two people become one flesh, share in life together, and that sex is reserved, that two becoming one sexually is reserved for that. So we talked about the challenge to that is lust and, and sexual immorality. Then the next week we talked about Jesus suffering by being abandoned, and that the biblical ideal, if you're not married, is to be celibate, celibate singleness. 
The challenge to that is loneliness and isolation if we do not form good community uh, as, as uh, Christ's body. The next week was Jesus suffering by being misunderstood and slandered. And the ideal for that is male and female. The creator created human beings, male and female. It's written into our chromosomes, into every cell in our body. Regardless of what we do to try to alter that, it's in our cells because the creator created us this way. And so the challenge to that would be trans and gender confusion or gender hatred, um, those kinds of things. So the next week was Jesus suffered by being betrayed. And the ideal is that there's a lifelong covenant, a commitment. What God is joined together and the two becoming one, no one should separate. So the challenge to that is cohabitation when you two become one in, in ways without the covenant or divorce when two have made the covenant and then it breaks apart. And then Jesus suffered by being rejected and condemned. So the ideal is that uh, God said it'd be marriage with a man and a woman. It was to be between a man and a woman and Jesus reinforced that. But then the challenge is that is when we are same-sex attracted. And so in all of this, what we're, what we're acknowledging is that we're all broken. We're not focusing on this person or this way or this. It's, we are all broken. We're all sexually broken. And we all suffer because we're broken and we live amongst broken people. Um, but Jesus suffered. And he can meet us in our brokenness. And he can bring restoration. And so then today... In this last Sunday of the series, Matt described very well how Jesus was tormented. The ideal, which is found throughout the Bible, is for innocence to be protected. But the challenge is abuse of power or sexual violation, as well as sexual addiction. So this is going to be um, a, heavy, a heavy Sunday. Before I get into it, I just want to let you know that um, out there in that room against the big wall that goes up high to the ceiling, we've got um, a recommended reading list. This is over a dozen books that I read for this series. Uh, Preston Sprinkle would be my number one. He's got a book on, on transgender, and, and he's also got a book on same-sex uh, attraction. They're both scholarly in a biblical way, but not too heady, um, but also very pastoral because he is, is in relationship with many people in the LGBTQ community. And then also, I just got to know Sam, not got to know, like heard him, about him and read his book. Sam Albury uh, is a wonderful pastor. His books are shorter, easier. Um, I read four of them in the la in less, last six weeks. Very, very good. So those are the two main authors I would recommend. I've got two books uh, out there for, um, that make the case, try, that try to make the case that the Bible says same-sex relationships are okay. So if you want to understand, I don't find them convincing, but I now understand them in their own terms um, by reading those. I've read other things, but those are two ones that people often point to. Um, there's some books out there that are just Christians who are same-sex attracted, telling their stories. There's a book out there by a pastor who's same-sex attracted, committed to lifelong celibacy, who says we should not try to get people to change their orientation. We should focus our energy on creating community 
for same-sex attracted people to be in, in community with one another. And then there's another book by a woman who has a healing prayer ministry and, and some psychological background who has seen people uh, change orientation, um, which would be more controversy, but if, controversial, but it, it, that also can happen. There's testimonies that that can happen as well. So those are two sides of that. And then if you're, besides LGBTQ, if you're just um, wanting a book on sex, marriage, God, there's one by John Mark Comer uh, that's, that's very good. So the books themselves are out there too because I don't always like ordering a book without being able to see the book so you can look at them and then decide if you want to get any of those. Okay, so one of the things that I've heard quite a few times, I don't hear this in church so much, but I hear it's just sex. It's just sex. What's the big deal? If people, two people are consenting, it's just sex. Well, one of the big deals in it is if we don't have the right boundaries around it, then, then boundaries get violated. And the fact that it's just sex kind of loses some of its convincingness when we think about the Me Too movement. When all these people who, who've been violated sexually report the pain of the violation. If it's just sex, why is it so painful? Because sex is not just a physical act, a physiological act. It, is it's a it affects us psych psychologically, emotionally, spiritually. And there's a physical part. They all come together in this. And when God made human beings, just to remind you, we talked about this a few weeks ago, like when he made creation, he would just speak it into existence, including animals, including live beings. He would just speak it into existence. But when it came to making the first man, he formed it out of dust. There's this picture. He, he came close. He was highly involved. He breathed life into the first man. This was intimate. This was intentional. He was there with. There's the man. And then when he made the first woman, he reached into the man into his side, and pulled something of the man out and woman. And these two are in his image, unlike everything else in creation, in his image. And he was highly involved in that. Now, what did it look like for human beings to be made in his image after that? Well, that happens through this sex act. That's not all that sex is for. Sex is also for bonding. There's chemicals that get, get released to, to bond. There is pleasure. There is the giving, self-giving love that can happen out of sex. But also it is how humans made in God's image. It's the process where that happens. Now, if you want to make something valuable, the process for making it is important. So we, we got money. We got bills. We got change. Even in this cashless society, I mean, people don't carry cash anymore. The budget for making money in 2022 in our country was over a billion dollars. The budget for making the money. Not how much money was made, the budget for making the money. They got a machine that's like almost 150 feet long to make it. Like half a football field long. 
Why? Well, if you can just make money off your copy machine, then what you hold isn't very valuable because anybody can make it. But if you want to make it in such a way that it holds its value, that it's unique, then the paper you use, the process you use, everything about it is important. Well, that is also true in our, sexual, our sexuality and our sexual relating. There is something very important about it. And if we think of our sexuality like cars, here's something. I'll just let you think about where I, you think I might be going with this for a second. I stayed in a place where it's a house. We got to stay in it. There's a garage. The garage wasn't very big. Lots of stuff, even stuff up there that you could use for the pool and things. But then there's two vehicles in it. And one of them is this big expedition. And the other one is a Porsche. Now, when I walk around in that by the Porsche, I am like, you know, I don't want to breathe on it. I got to get stuff down. And I am not always coordinated in these kind of moments. And so I have like trying to create safety precautions to make sure I do not want to wreck this guy's Porsche, right? Then there's my car. Over 160,000 miles on it, dents all over the place. I mean, I don't even, like, distance does not matter to me. Like, if, if, if something's in front of me, it'll stop me eventually, right? My wife doesn't appreciate that, so don't let her know that that's how I think about these things. Actually, we, I still take care of that car because we can't just go out and buy another car. But the point is, like, if you've got an old beater car, then you think, well, this isn't, I'm not as careful. If you've got something that, well, with our sexuality, if we think that our sexuality is valuable, we will take care of it. We will be careful with it. We will follow the directions for how to properly care for it. But if we don't, because of decisions we've made or because of damage that's been done to us, then we might not. And especially if we don't know that there's hope for restoration to our sexuality. And so today, in order to talk about um, abuse of power and sexual violation... There are many stories that could be told. Because there's many in this room who've experienced this. There are people who are watching online or who will be watching or listening later who've experienced this. And so we can tell those stories. What I'm going to do instead is I'm going to talk about, take us through two stories in the Bible where this happens. And what I'm aware of is that my words in trying to address this well are going to be inadequate. And so what I'd like to ask of you is if you could silently pray from where you're at that God's grace would come to people who are here or who are watching or listening now or later who have experienced sexual violation. Or abuse. If you could pray for them. And if you would pray for people here or who are watching or listening who have a sexual addiction. We need God's help to bring restoration 
to these areas of our lives. And so I'm even going to pause right now just so we can start, but then I want you to, as it may pop into your mind throughout the sermon when I get boring or something like that, just pray. That will do more good than anything I could say. So let's pray. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. Again, I encourage you to keep praying whenever you feel led throughout this message. The first story we're going to look at is about King David. It's a fairly well-known story as far as Bible stories go. Um, at this point, King, da- King David has gotten to like the height of his power. He's had tons of victories. His, there's all kinds of unity around his leadership. So at the height of your power, when things are going for you, it's easy to focus less on God, depend less on God than when things are hard. And that might be the place that King David's at. Here's how the story goes in 2 Samuel chapter 11. In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. There's a sign that something up. When the kings go out to war, David didn't go out to war. And it mentions it twice. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent some messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. So in this, David looked at a woman long enough to notice that she was very beautiful. And in the past when I've read this, I often think about all of this happening in a matter of a couple hours. Him seeing her, him finding out about her. him. But it's probably more likely multiple days that went on where he was thinking about this and thinking and thinking about how can I get along with her? How can I find out about her? How can I? I wonder if there was certain like, oh, I shouldn't, but, I, but he just kept it going in his head. Now, meanwhile, the passage makes pretty clear that Bathsheba, she's doing the ritual cleansing. She is a, a godly woman. She is trying to do what's right. She was not the one who initiated or was looking for this. Now, it does not say that he raped her, which a couple chapters later, one of David's sons is going to rape somebody. And it uses that kind of language in the Bible. Another story we're going to look at, it uses that kind of language in the Bible. So in one sense, there wasn't like a violent force that was used. However, what kind of choice did Bathsheba have? We don't know if she came in and she was like taken up, like, wow, I can't believe this is me. This, I mean, this kind of celebrity atmosphere. Or if she just was like, what choice do I have? One of Harvey Weinstein's accusers, when interviewed, said, I'm a 20-some-year-old gal trying to make my way in this industry. He's a 64-year-old man, known worldwide, who owns the company. When it comes to power dynamics, he's at a 10 and I'm at a zero. Well, that would be the same for David and Bathsheba. 
regardless of to what extent she was a willing participant, he abused his position and his power. He's the one who was in the wrong, who put her in a, in a bad place. This is on him. Now, that when he finds out that she becomes pregnant, he creates a strategy. This is not going to look good for him. So he calls back her husband from the battles that he's fighting to, in order to hope that he will sleep with his wife and then think that the baby is his. But what he doesn't count on is Uriah is a noble man. And he just sleeps out on, outside. And David comes to him and says, what are, you, what are you doing? Why aren't you with your wife? He's like, how could I do that? God's reputation is at stake. My brothers are out there in battle. By, there's no way that I'm going to go home and have a good time. I am, I am laying on the ground till I go back and join them. So, so then David tries, has a party, you know, let's eat food. You've got to come. No, you've got to come. Get, get some drunk. Now maybe, but he still just sleeps outside. No way is he going to violate the integrity of he is not going to leave his, his brothers and give pleasure to himself when they're there. So David writes a letter, gives it to him, says, take this back to the battle and give it to the commander. What Uriah didn't realize was it was his death sentence because what the letter said is, when the battle happens next time, go press to the front where the fighting is fierce and instruct the people that you send there to all withdraw at the same time so that Uriah will be killed. And that's what happens. Although Uriah isn't the only one killed. And this happens a lot with people who with their power, are trying to cover up what they've done or are trying to inflict pain on someone else is that there's one target in mind, but there's also collateral damage. There are other people that get hurt when this kind of thing happens. So now, he gets, David gets the report that this has happened. He's relieved. We pick the story back up in verse 25. David told the messenger, say this to Joab, don't let this upset you. Oh, I mean, 26. 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. After the time of mourning was over, David had her brought to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing David had done displeased the Lord. We notice here that, that Bathsheba actually mourned for her husband. It's good and healthy that she would do that because her life, as it was going to be, was now taken from her. And she needed to, to grieve that. And I wonder if Bathsheba would have just all kinds of conflicting things going on in her. Because maybe there was part of her that, that liked being with David, but there's another part of her that loves her husband and knows this is wrong and didn't want this to happen. Maybe there's part of her that thinks this is her fault this must be her fault. When people are abused sexually, one of the things, I'm under, as I understand it, that happens is that because in the sexual violation itself, pleasure, part of our pleasure centers are stimulated, it does strange things because we don't want this and we think it's bad, and yet there's part of it that we feel pleasure. And it creates more of the pain and confusion underneath in ways that I don't think we, we can even process when that's happening to us. And I wonder if some of that was going on with Bathsheba. So now David thinks he's in the clear, but you'll notice the Lord saw it all. 
And the Lord was displeased. So the Lord sends a prophet, Nathan, to David. And the prophet Nathan says, I want to tell you a story about something that's happened in your kingdom. Okay, go ahead. He says there's a really rich man. He's got lots and lots of stuff, including tons of sheep and animals and cattle. He's got all kinds. And near him lives this really poor man who has nothing like that. But he does have one sheep, but he loves the sheep. It's like a pet to him. He, the sheep is with him at the table. The sheep sleeps near him in his bed. He loves the sheep. It's like the thing he loves most in life. Well, the rich man was having someone come, show up to his house, and rather than kill one of his many sheep that he's got, he went and stole that sheep and slaughtered it and served it to his guest. Now, the response is verse 5, David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, as surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Not necessarily related to anything sexual abuse or sexual at all, but one thing we should pay attention to is when we really get mad about what someone else does, we should examine, is there a way I do the same thing? Because a lot of times, what's going on in us, but we try to keep it out of our own consciousness, we get really mad at other people. Anyway, David is mad. The man's going to die. The man deserves no pity. Nathan's response, verse 7, he said to David, you are the man. This is what the Lord says. The God of Israel says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you all Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. Of the things that we could draw from this story, one is that when someone abuses their power, when they take advantage of someone else sexually, God says, it's not okay. That is not okay. If that has happened to you, what has happened to you, God says, it is not okay. That was not okay what they did to you. And there will be consequences, although whether those get seen and realized now or in the life of God, I don't know how. But we do know that God sees. And God says what has happened to you is not okay. What they did is not okay. Now, the other story we're going to look at is from Genesis. It's a story about Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, so like the person from the, which the whole nation came. There's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Jacob became Israel. And at this point, in the story, Jacob has grown children, and he is camped out or decide to settle in a place near another city called Shechem. Chapter 34 of Genesis says, Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, born to Jacob, went out to visit the women of the land. When Shechem, some son of Hamar, the Hivite, the ruler of that area, saw her, he took her 
and raped her. Now, what is clear is that Dinah was not asking for this. Dinah was going to be with women. That's what she was seeking to do. She is not at fault in this. Shechem, right, that's the one, yeah. Shechem said, or Shechem did not talk to her. He just saw her, so evidently lusted at her, after her, took her, and raped her. Next verses. His heart was drawn to Dinah, daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. And Shechem said to his father, Hamor, get me this girl as my wife. A couple of things I want to point out. This is different than if we had kept reading in 2 Samuel about David's son Amnon. When he, he raped a woman, he thought about her, he, he obsessed over her, he wanted her. And then when he finally got her, it says once he had her, he, de- he despised her after he was done. And that often happens, whether it is rape or just some other conquest, sexual conquest, that it goes from lust and obsession, but because it's driven by lust, then at the end it goes to despising. But in this case, he wants to be with her, but what you'll notice in these verses and what you'll notice in the rest of the verses is that nobody talks about Dinah about Dinah, or to Dinah, but nobody talks to Dinah, but nobody talks about Dinah as Dinah. They don't use her name. The only one that uses her name in this story is the narrator. Everyone else, it is impersonal. The culture of that time, in terms of how men saw women, were as objects. It was impersonal. So it's almost like property, as you'll see, property exchanges in this. Now, we don't have that same kind of culture set up, thank God. But the objectifying of women or of men, just being sexual objects, is what happens so often. And in the height of the, you, or the Me Too movement, what was happening simultaneously as month after month that's gaining traction and we're hearing more stories and there is a movement to do something about it is that the book series, Fifty Shades of Grey, which is about male sexual dominance, is, becomes the highest book-selling series or book series of the decade and gets turned into movies, which become one of the highest grossing movie franchises of all time. So on one hand, we know sexual violation is wrong and see the pain of it, hear the stories of it, and rightly say no. But on the other hand, we don't say, let's not feed lust. As a culture, we don't say that. We say, how, how dare you say what we should dress like? How dare you say what we should... And please, there's no, it's not someone's fault if, the, the way they dressed. I'm just saying this idea of lust, binge-watching Netflix, viewing pornography, all of these things, you say, don't, don't bring your Christian judgmentalism here but we become more boundaryless as a society sexually. 
We have a multi-billion dollar a year porn industry, which increasingly has younger people in the porn acts. Sex trafficking goes up, not just throughout the other parts of the world, but in our midst. In fact, Des Moines, Iowa is one of the hubs, hotbeds of it because of the way interstates come together from north and south and east and west. And so, if we don't want to feed that, if we don't want women trapped in these situations, or children, then let's not feed the demand by participating in those things and viewing those things and downloading those things. And I say this not to shame anyone, but just to bring the reality because what you can easily hear is what you do in your bedroom, on your screen, is your own business. But it actually has impact. For one thing, it actually does damage your own soul. But for another thing, it doesn't just impact you. The supply and demand that's being created is just creating awful things happening throughout our world and right here in our county. Back to the story. Then Shechem's, or when Jacob heard that his daughter Dinah had been defiled, his sons were in the fields with his livestock. So he did nothing about it until they came home. He was very passive in this. Maybe because he didn't know what to do. Maybe because he felt guilty. Maybe because he didn't care as much as he should. I don't know, but he didn't do anything. Then Shechem's father, Hamar, went out to talk with Jacob. Meanwhile, Jacob's sons had come in from the fields as soon as they heard what had happened. They were shocked and furious because Shechem had done an outrageous thing in Israel by sleeping with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamar said to them, My son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give him, her to him as his wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters and take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land is open to you. Live in it, trade in it, and acquire, acquire property in it. Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and I will give you whatever you ask. Make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like and I'll pay whatever you ask. Only give me the young woman as my wife. Again, he wants her, but almost like a consuming kind of want. Not a personal kind of love. And no one says anything to Dinah and no one even brings up her name in the midst of this. Now, here's where the story goes from there. The brothers, because they're upset that their sister has been defiled, decide to deceive. And they say, hey, we can't let you have our sister as your wife if you're not circumcised, like we're all circumcised. But if you want, you can get circumcised and all the men of your city get circumcised and then we can be like one people and trade things and become families together and all of that. But that's the deal. That's the only way. And so Hamar and his son Shechem are like, great, we'll do this. We'll go talk to the, the rest of the town and tell the guys that we want to be, you know, we need to be circumcised so all this can happen. And I, I'm thinking to myself, that's a pretty tough sale. Man, 
I mean, back in the day, that'd be bad enough now, but back in the day, you're going to do this to adult men? And, bro, I don't care how much you like her. That's not happening. But he appeals to, they appeal to the greed. And basically, they plant the seed. Eventually, we can take all, they're wealthy people. We can take all they have. And so they do it. They all get circumcised. Verse 25, three days later, while all of them were still in, in pain, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male. They put Hamar and his son Shechem to the sword and took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies and looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of their, in the city and out in the fields. They carried off all their wealth and, and all their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me obnoxious to the Canaanites and Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. But they replied, should we have treated our sister like a prostitute? That's the end of the chapter. So at the end of the chapter, the story ends with Jacob saying, you just acted like barbarians, and now we're in trouble. And them saying, you didn't do anything to defend our sister. You're passive. You're hyper-aggressive. Nobody's talking about Dinah. Not really. They say for the honor of their sister. But all they did was throw her this way, use her in their, their scheme, then take her away again, and then they get rich. In this chapter... One of the ways Genesis is written is it's meditation literature, and it's meant to be read over and over again to see what the patterns are, to have conversations. And one of the things that you would notice from this story is that God is never mentioned. In every other chapter except for one, which is about the genealogies of, of Noah, for the 34 chapters leading up here, God is always mentioned. Usually he's mentioned a lot. But in this story, no. And one of the things I think we can draw from it, he, this was not what he wanted. None of it. Nobody was looking to him. Nobody was living like he would want them to live. None of it. And it ends up a mess. But the other thing that I think we could draw from this story is that that's how Dinah experienced all of this. Where's God? Where's God? He's not there for her. And I think that's a common way that we experience abuse. Where's God? Then God said to Jacob, this is where it goes next, all of a sudden God does speak. He says, go up to Bethel and settle there. 
and build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, God, rid, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you and purify yourselves and change your clothes. Then come, let us go to Bethel where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and who has been with me wherever I have gone. So the story ends. Jacob and his brothers... Jacob and his sons yelling at each other, you're wrong, you're wrong. And when God comes down and speaks, he doesn't say, Here's who, he just says, go build an altar. It's time to purify yourselves of all of this. It's time to bring the focus back to me. Because when you don't have the focus on me, this all unravels. When people and a group of people and then the group of people mainly live in ways that are opposite of what I say what to do, it all unravels and people get so hurt and destroy each other. My hope is that Good Friday service would be kind of like this building of an altar where we come and we focus on the ultimate sacrifice. And we get purified because that's what he does. And that would include sex, our own sexual sin or sexual sin that's been done against us. That would include all kinds of other things. Our greed, our racism, our hatred, our self-hatred, all of these things. Whatever we bring, we could bring it to the cross and there could be a purification that happens. So as I've closed all these sermons in this series, I do it with a couple of questions. One is, what is our response to all of this? And I would encourage one of the responses to be to talk with someone. Talk with someone who is safe to talk to. If you have been violated or abused, if you are in an abusive situation, talk with someone. Talk with a counselor. At that book table sheet where we have the sheets of recommended reading, we also have sheets of recommended counselors. Talk with someone. One of the things I... My understanding is one of the things that happens is that the trauma that happens to us gets pushed down. Sometimes even like we're just not very conscious of it because that's how we can function, but it still impacts us. So when it is safe, when there's safe places, we can bring it down and then it can come out to be healed. But when we just push it down, when we stay in isolation, we can often carry shame with us. Shame that we're not intended to carry. And so, keep getting it out of the dark. Like there is something uniquely wrong with me. Or if people knew about this part of me. But then to bring it and to experience love and listening and grace and prayer can be helpful.
And I would say the same recommendation to those of us who have sexual addictions. Because the same thing, we're ashamed of it, so we don't tell anybody about it. And then we try, and then we fail, and then we shame, and we try, and we fail, and we, but we don't tell anybody. And in our isolation, we're just not strong. I mean, you think about alcohol addiction, drug addiction. We need help. We need others. So we need to bring it out to the open. We need to tell someone. And then the other thing I would say, besides talking with a person, is to talk with Jesus. Talk with Jesus. One of the of people who have been sexually abused and hurt that I know, I, I know a number of people who have had experience of Jesus was there, of seeing Jesus in a memory, maybe afterwards, maybe holding, maybe caring, maybe crying. And to know that he is there then, that he hates what happens, that he is there moving forward has been a source of healing. I'm not sure if that's everyone's healing path or journey or experience. I just know that there is hope that Jesus can bring healing and restoration. That he wants to be with you in your pain or hurt. That he wants to be with you to help you break your addiction if you're in addictive behaviors you're committing affairs, if you're seeing prostitutes, it's like, well, no way could I talk to Jesus about that. But he already knows, and he wants to be the one who helps. And so we can talk with Jesus. We can talk with him because of his response. That's the last question. The worship team can come up. What is Jesus' response to all of this? Well, we, Matt read about the fact that Jesus knows what it's like to be tormented, to be abused. He was completely innocent in every way. And yet, he was stripped, he was humiliated, he was made fun of, he was beaten. And he was willing to take all of our shame on himself. He did it because he was saying, you don't need to carry that with you anymore. You can bring it to me. That's why I suffered. You can bring me your shame. You can bring me your shame. That's what Jesus says. You can bring me your shame. You don't have to carry that anymore. Let's go ahead and pray.
God, things have happened that ought not to have happened. And some of us wonder, if you weren't there, how can we trust you're here? How can we trust you will be there? Would you come and gently minister to those parts of our hearts? Would you show us what we need to be shown right now, whether it's if you were there or if you're here? Would you come be with us now? Some of us in this room are in touch with things because of what happened to us. Some of us are in touch with things because of what's happened to those we love. We just bring it all to you. Some of us feel despicable right now because we're the perpetrators. Would you come to those people as well to set them free? As we sing this closing song, would you keep ministering to us with the love of the Father, Jesus, and with the ministry of the Holy Spirit? Would you bring healing? Would you Help us to leave more full, more connected to your love. We're praying these things to you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort who comforts us in all our troubles. Jesus' name that we're praying and continuing to pray.